This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The future belongs to those who produce nuclear energy. That is going to be the chief noted power for the future. Of course, defense is intimately related to this. Even the political consequences are worthwhile. It was Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first Prime Minister, writing to Sardar Baldev Singh, the first Defence Minister of India, on 29th February 1948. The Prime Minister had just studied a report by the scientist Homi Jahangir Bhabha about prospects of atomic energy research in India. And he was now sure that India, and I quote, should start taking steps in that direction, unquote. I'll be quoting Nehru more. Two months later, in April 1948, while moving the Atomic Energy Bill in the Constituent Assembly, Nehru spoke once again at length on the issue. He said, and I quote, using atomic energy might change the whole world within our lifetime. I'm worried, he said that if India did not immediately take advantage of the process of making atomic energy, it would be left behind. Unquote. But more importantly, he emphasized that much secrecy is required around atomic energy research. He said, most of the countries advanced in research are jailers, that the result of their research should not be known to others. Our research on atomic energy cannot be as public as normal scientific research ought to be. He was very clear. The other point about atomic research he underscored in that address is that it could no longer be carried out in isolation or by one researcher in the university laboratory. To be effective or successful, atomic energy research had to be conducted on a large scale. An individual simply did not have the means to mobilize so much resource without the state stepping in. Critically enough, as uh, we will see, Nehru did not distinguish between atomic energy research for defense purposes and atomic energy research for peaceful purposes. In fact, a member of the assembly actually asked him precisely that question. And he said he did not know how to decide or distinguish between defense purposes or peaceful purposes with regard to nuclear research. Therefore, let us be clear, from the very beginning, atomic or nuclear energy research has been treated as above India's normal science research. Welcome to History Chatter. This is Anirban and now we begin the five-part series on atomic energy research in India. We call it The Atomic India. Let us be clear on one point. The emergence and existence of India as a sovereign independent nation-state is inseparable. I repeat, inseparable 
from the authority of science as the form of enlightenment, power, progress and freedom. The idea of India immediately brings to mind railroads, steel plants, irrigation projects, hydroelectric projects, mining projects, IITs, political parties, media revolutions, and even the atom bomb. All of them were brought into being by an ideology of modernity. Now, this ideology of modernity, of becoming modern and progressive, was mounted on the scaffold of science. Science was seen, is seen, as the face of universal reason. To be endowed with a scientific heritage became a qualification a primary decisive qualification to be a nation. Thus, the Indian nation state, which came into being in 1947, was underwritten by science. And here, science is not merely a laboratory-based discipline, but a cultural authority for rationality and progress. Science was not just what scientists did in the laboratory, but really a set of values it stood for. Science is a shorthand for freedom, for enlightenment, for power and for progress. As though science alone has the capacity to deliver on the potential and promise of them all. Now, this idea of science as uh, the face of reason is, in a sense, a colonial legacy. The authority and application of science as the face of universal reason was really the ruling philosophy behind the organization of the colonial state in India, especially after the rebellion of 1857. The British believed that empirical science was the real face of universal knowledge. Empirical science was understood as free from prejudice and passion. And it was also to be a means to civilize the natives. The native world of superstition and myths had to be dissolved and made rational and governable. So, science in colonial India was used to dominate and also to liberate Indians at the same time. Therefore, science subsequently appeared in India as a marker of progress and of rationality. Science was not really about what scientists did or do. It was more about a set of positive values. It represented a dazzling range of meanings and functions and promises. Therefore, the association of science with the state is particularly important. Science was a vehicle of rationality and progress.
and it had the capacity to modernize the country. Therefore, the state had to necessarily invest in science if the nation were to make advances. During colonial times, Indians were gradually allowed the authority to understand and even teach or research science. Since that was the precondition to becoming modern and progressive, the Indian leadership, the Indian elite, the educated and politically aware leaders of the society stood at the intersection of Western science and Indian traditions. Sometimes it produced most curious consequences. For example, nationalist Hindus often searched for traces of science in Indian tradition, as though the former was built into the latter. After all, as historian Gyan Prakash notes, the language of reason was an idiom of power in colonial India. Later, when the Indian elite assumed power in independent India, science immediately became part of the ruling ideology. The British colonial state had reorganized India into a space to be ordered and controlled by various technical agencies of administration. For them, the state had become an embodiment of techniques. State power effectively became an extension of that space constituted by techniques. This perspective interprets the nationalist struggle against colonialism as a contest for the power to control people. If the colonial state controlled them earlier, the nationalist leaders were now ready to control and rule over a large number of people. It's no wonder, therefore, the relationship between science and politics, in India at least, has always been highly charged. I want to introduce you to the history of India's nuclear policy against this background. Janavi Falke, who has written a wonderful book on the theme, argues that uh, even though nuclear physics was at the cutting edge of the discipline at the time, the organization of research facilities after the Second World War in India came to be arranged in such a manner that those who carried out laboratory-based legitimate experiments in science had to necessarily secure the approval of the bureaucratic state. The state of India was obsessed with science, particularly with nuclear energy research. For that was perceived as one of the marks of distinction in the high politics of international diplomacy. Now, there were three transitions which marked the post-war organization of nuclear research in India. Let us look into these three transitions. The first, of course, was the transition from the imperial rule to national independence. The second transition was the expansion of experimental nuclear physics from modest setups 
towards electronics and complex instrumentation systems. The third and probably the most influential change was the shift of conversations about nuclear energy research beyond the university laboratories and into the high octane stage of nation states and international politics. Now, anti-colonial nationalism had informed the freedom struggle. We all know that fairly well. But that was not enough as an ideology to provide a coherent national identity. The political, administrative and territorial entity of India, which came into being in the aftermath of partition and integration of princely states, had never before existed as a single state. The nationalist leadership in India therefore had to design a new kind of state. This new state had to have the capacity to secure the loyalty of its citizens. And one of the ingredients of this new state was its reliance on science and technology as a necessary means of progress on a large scale. Science and technology was, in other words, the lifeblood of the new sovereign Indian nation-state that came into being soon after the partition and independence in the same breath. Now, let's step back for a moment and, and go up to a couple of years before independence. By 1945, the nationalist leaders had to decide what kind of state uh, they wanted to make in India once it became independent. Uh, was their goal to establish a pure version of the Western state? Something which British imperialism did not allow at all? Or uh, was the new state going to be the civilizing state like uh, before, but now it was to be uh, carrying the imprint of the new sovereign nation? Or was it to be a Gandhian state based on the principle of a self-sustaining village economy? Frankly, uh, political leaders like Nehru or Bose or nationalist scientists like Meghnad Saha were absolutely clear that the Gandhian option was doomed to failure. The new Indian state came to be based on the universalized configuration of the modern state. Even though its prospect in India had already been corrupted, blunted, if you like, by the logic of imperialism. The decolonization of British India resulted in severe political instability in the subcontinent. The partition of the territory into India and East and West Pakistan resulted in a serious law and order disruption. There was no time really to worry about whether it was proper or useful or appropriate to persist with a government with colonial police and military apparatus. Now, against this background, the ideology of scientific industrialism became the guiding force of the new Indian state. 
Now, scientific industrialism as an ideology was a response to the need to restore or to establish the material development of the Indian subcontinent through industrialization. Industrialization came to mean the development of science-based industry. Science emerges as the only available means to deliver better living conditions on a large or industrial scale. Now, the Indian thought leaders since at least the late 19th century were convinced that the application of science on an industrial scale alone had the capacity to deliver development. Now, this vision virtually anticipated a leadership role for the state in large-scale application of science to improve society and economy. As early as 1890, Mohindralal Sarkar, who had set up the Indian Association for the Cultivation of Science in Calcutta, observed that the scientist or the man of practice did not have the means for large-scale application of science in industry. Therefore, by independence, which was uh, 50 years later, a consensus had already emerged that planned industrial development based upon goal-oriented scientific research or industrial research was not only the best, but also the most correct path towards progress. The National Planning Committee, for example, was given a clear brief, and I quote, that it is essential that much greater attention should be paid to making scientific and technological research an integral part of the planned economy, unquote. Now, National Planning Committee, incidentally, was set up by uh, Netaji Bose as the president of, of the Congress in 1938. Its objective was to study the Indian economy and recommend plans and strategies for the rapid uh, development of an independent India. Jawaharlal Nehru chaired the committee and they were only referring um, to a global consensus. For example, in 1927, Bertrand Russell already warned that civilization would collapse without a worldwide, and I quote, central authority, unquote, to ensure that production is organized scientifically. Albert Einstein lamented, and I quote, that economic anarchy of capitalist society and called for a socialist economy in which the means of production would be utilized in a planned fashion. So the nationalist conception of the state in independent India had reserved a primary role for the state in virtually authorizing high-end scientific and technological research as a precondition for material development. The state in independent India thus emerged as the leading agent of national development. And this national development was to be achieved by industrial scale application of advanced 
technological research. The Indian state makers face the challenge of what to do with advanced nuclear research soon after the end of the Second World War. The Constituent Assembly debated the future of nuclear weapons in free India. The secrecy surrounding nuclear research and the regulation of mining and trade of fissile material found in India. Interestingly enough, uh, nuclear energy was not a subject of state laws anywhere in the world before the Second World War. Since the use of the atomic weapons, however, atomic and nuclear research became intimately connected with warfare and became the business of states. The atom bomb suddenly redefined the implications of nuclear physics research for the community of physicists and scientists and certainly for the community of statesmen as well. So the discovery of nuclear fission confirmed the potential of nuclear energy for the scientific community. How this could be utilized for war became very clear by the end of the Second World War. However, there was no clarity yet about how to use nuclear power for peaceful purposes, including energy production. Now, the Indian physicists were drawn towards nuclear physics from a modernist perspective. And here I'm talking about the time before the Second World War. During the 1930s, for instance, a modernist perspective meant the development of infrastructure to participate in nuclear research as an international activity or uh, participation in nuclear research in leading centers in Europe and America. For example, in 1938, both C.V. Raman and Meghnad Saha sent their students to, um, to the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge and the Radiation Laboratory at the University of California. These students were to be trained there and on return they were to set up nuclear physics facilities in India. Now at that point, in 1938 I mean, the Indian physicists were looking to harness the potential of nuclear physics for mainly peaceful purposes. For example, in 1936, Meghnad Saha was impressed by the atom smasher or cyclotron uh, at the radiation laboratory in Berkeley. He was convinced of his importance for medical treatment and nuclear physics research. Um, and he wanted to build one in India because the atom smasher would elevate the status of his laboratory as one possessing the most recent equipment for advanced scientific research. Similarly, C.V. Raman saw the necessity for establishing a nuclear physics division at um, the Institute of Science in Bangalore to retain its prestige as India's foremost scientific research institute. Similarly, Homi Bhabha in Bombay had been looking to set up an outstanding school of physics to train Indian scientists to become master of nuclear energy research. Now, all of these three frontline nuclear scientists in India had accepted that nuclear physics was necessary for building a nation 
and as a sign of civilization. Yet, there was no reason to prioritize nuclear physics. There was no case yet to be made for nuclear exceptionalism. Now, that changed. All of that changed with the use of atomic weapons at the end of Second World War. Nuclear physics now became uniquely important to the state. It was no longer possible to think about nuclear research along the same lines as, as for instance, uh, building dams or planning heavy industrial development. A lack of mastery over nuclear science became a major cause of anxiety. Not possessing nuclear knowledge could prevent India from participating in international politics as a sovereign nation state. Now, would the inability to master nuclear science and technology mean the loss of sovereignty once again? Going nuclear was a scientific and technological challenge that had to be mastered at any cost because it practically meant the making of a sovereign state. In terms of funds and complexity, nuclear research suddenly became too large, too large an enterprise to stay confined within the university laboratory. The research field that Raman, Saha or Bhaba wanted to pioneer was now transformed suddenly in scale, in significance, and in the very nature of its experimental practice. In the prevailing circumstances of scarcity, it was no longer possible to keep the two domains of fundamental research in nuclear physics and nuclear energy research separate. The two communities' convergence of interests and anxieties, I mean the nationalist political leadership and nuclear physics researchers, the convergence of their interests and anxieties completely recast the nuclear field for free India. And that happened most decisively between 1945 and 1948. Nehru, the Prime Minister, and the political leadership had found in this community the expertise to work the technological challenge presented by the nuclear. On the other hand, scientists like Raman, Saha, Baba, and their colleagues and students were keenly aware of the support their proposals would now enjoy with the new government. The importance of the co-production of the state in India and nuclear physics community in independent India cannot be overestimated. In the next episode, I'll return to the development of nuclear or atomic research in India. I'll talk about the early history of nuclear research in Bangalore and in Calcutta, for instance, and then about the creation of the Atomic Energy Commission. Do you remember the speech by Jawaharlal Nehru with which I started this episode? 
that speech was a preface to establishing a body like the atomic energy commission so that's coming up in the next episode atomic india in history chatter i look forward to seeing you again